Tonight marks the 17th year of the lecture series and AFOPA is proud to bring to you Dr. Yara Hawari as its guest speaker. Dr. Hawari is a Palestinian academic and writer living in occupied Palestine from where she'll be delivering her talk this evening. Dr. Hawari obtained her PhD in Middle East Studies at the University of Exeter. The research focused on oral history and indigenous studies. She works as a senior analyst with Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, which is a transnational think tank. She writes extensively on all areas of politics in Palestine and Israel, including issues relating to international law and advocacy. She's a frequent political commentator for media outlets, including The Guardian, Foreign Policy and Al Jazeera English. She's also author of Stone House, published late last year, and is host of the podcast Rethinking Palestine, which is really good listening. And I'll give you Dr. Yara Hawari. Thank you so much for that introduction. And thank you, Australian Friends of Palestine Association, for hosting me um, for this, this year's talk. As mentioned, I am calling in from colonised Palestine which has been surviving and resisting against settler colonial erasure for over seven decades. Um, I know that I don't need to explain uh, settler colonialism to all of you in Australia, but there is something important to say and highlight, and that's uh, whilst all cases of settler colonialism have their peculiarities and, and different characteristics, they always follow the same pattern and logic of indigenous erasure, and they end up copying each other's narratives and mechanisms of oppression much more than we know. And the Israeli regime is no exception to that. And it's important to mention this because one of the underpinnings of the Zionist narrative is that it's a project in Palestine or its project in Palestine um, and, and the Israeli state ex itself are exceptional. And this is a narrative that adopts uh, notions such as, you know, the, the Israeli state surviving against all odds uh, and that the Zionist project is about people returning to their homeland as promised by biblical scriptures, et cetera, et cetera. This is not an exceptional narrative at all. And actually world over settler colonialists and even bog standard colonialists have used similar language to justify colonization of indigenous and native land. For example, settler colonialists in West Africa in the 1800s used a biblical narrative um, and they claimed that they were returning to the original land of civilization where it all first began uh, and that they were the rightful owners of this land. And similarly in Australia, settler colonial colonialists used this notion of terra nullius, empty land, to claim ownership. In the 1930s, during fascist Italy's so-called pacification efforts in Libya, Mussolini sought to establish a new type of colony on appropriated Libyan land. And one of the underpinnings of this particular project was the notion that Italy was returning to Libya, which had once been under the Roman Empire. And so the Italian government built entire settler colonies prior to the arrival of these Italian uh, settler farmers. The homes were already furnished. They built all these replica institutions of uh, social, cultural and political life uh, of those in Italy. And even before David Ben-Gurion said it in the 1950s in Palestine, Mussolini used the biblical metaphor of making the desert bloom to imagine the fascist revitalization of Libya. 
Now, of course, in, in Libya and in Palestine, this making the desert bloom meant the land had to be emptied of its indigenous population to make room for the settlers. And we know that most of the, the, the desert in Palestine is in the Naqab area, which is in the south. And during the 1948 Naqba, the Zionist forces expelled almost 90% of the 100,000 Bedouins that resided there to the West Bank, to Gaza, to Jordan and Egypt. And today, thousands of Bedouins who are descendants of those that survived that original ethnic cleansing in 1948 are still facing house demolitions, displacement, resettlement, uh, in permanent towns to facilitate the Israeli regime plan to domesticate the desert and reclaim it for its own settlements. So it's, it's not only these narratives, though, that are shared among these colonial and settler colonial projects, it's also mechanisms of oppression. This year, Amnesty International came out with a report condemning the Israeli regime to be one that is committing apartheid against the Palestinian people. And it comes off the back of other similar human rights organization reports, but more importantly, it comes off the back of many Palestinian scholars, activists and experts who have identified apartheid as Israel's mechanism of containment and oppression of the Palestinian people. Now, of course, apartheid is known globally for what happened in South Africa, but even in international law, the definition makes it clear that this is a system of domination that can take different shapes and forms and can have different characteristics. And even settler colonialists themselves recognize that they are not exceptional and they look to each other to maintain the oppression of indigenous people. So, for example, the Israeli regime and the South African apartheid regime were on very friendly terms during the South Africa uh, apartheid era. And declassified South African documents even show how the Israeli regime offered to sell South Africa nuclear weapons in the 1950s, which, of course, it denied because the Israeli regime neither denies nor confirms that it is the only regime in the Middle East with nuclear weapons. Now, the most obvious example of uh, cozy relations between settler colonial states is that of the US and Israel. And this, of course, is a relationship that is not only based on shared values of racism and colonialism, but also of mutual interests. It's to the US's benefit that it maintains such a strong ally in the Middle East, almost functioning like an imperial buffer. And for the Israeli regime, the literally billions of dollars in military aid also comes in pretty useful. Now, why have I talked about de-exceptionalizing the Israeli regime and the Zionist settler colonial project in a talk about imagining the future? Well, it's because I think it's vitally important that, that we as Palestinians uh, and, and many of you as allies of the Palestinian struggle understand intimately our current condition and that it's not so different from other conditions of oppressed and colonized people in history. And I think from these shared, uh, shared and similar experiences of invasion and erasure, we can begin to paint a picture of a liberated Palestinian future. But I think I've just made it sound very easy and it's, that's actually far from the reality. Indian novelist and, and writer Arundhati Roy once wrote, remember this, Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. 
Now, Roy's words are not only optimistic, they're also a very clear refusal of the unjust global reality that we live in, a reality in which the world continues on an unstoppable path of self-destruction and where power structures that repress the majority of the Earth's population continue to be entrenched. The environment is being devastated to satiate unquenchable greed. The gap between rich and poor grows larger, Gender-based violence is a feature of daily life everywhere, and the colonial subjugation of the global South is continuous. So in this reality, it really is a remarkable feat to be able to remain optimistic and imagine a different future. And particularly speaking from Palestine, I struggle to hear the breathing of this other word that Roy writes about. Even when I shut out the you know, the deafening noise of injustice and, and oppression, I really struggled to hear even a whisper of this other world. But it is important for us to recognise that the inability to see beyond the present and imagine a world otherwise is not a coincidence. It's actually by design. Now, among many things, settler colonial projects control perceptions of reality that bind Indigenous and colonised people into a seemingly perpetual state of being. And this control was cemented through the building of colonial infrastructure, the establishment of colonial institutions, the obliteration of the traces of indigenous life and land. And ultimately it creates this facade of permanent, permanency which situates the futures of indigenous and colonized people within colonial borders. So in Palestine, these colonial manifestations include, for example, the ever-increasing enlargement of Israeli settlements, the incarceration of thousands, uh, uh, and the over seven decades long exile of more than half of our people. And this oppression in Palestine is multi-layered. You know, under settler colonialism, other power structures such as patriarchy and capitalism are intensified, keeping the majority of people oppressed and subjugated. And for its part, the Israeli regime has long sought to bolster patriarchal and, and capitalist structures in order in an effort to continuously disrupt Palestinian society. So I'll give you some examples. Um, Israeli police often work with patriarchal clan heads in the 48 territories in order to sort of solve intra-communal issues. And these practices have often left women at risk and, and vulnerable to those that cause them harm. And it's only increased their marginalization from society. The Israeli regime forces also use gendered violence to deter women from resistance and political activism. In both these ways, they entrench patriarchy within Palestinian uh, communities. Now, the Israeli regime has also used racial capitalist mechanisms to oppress Palestinians. For example, Palestinian workers from the West Bank are funneled into the 48 territories as cheap and exploitable, uh, as a cheap and exploitable workforce. They work in very laborious and sometimes hazardous jobs for low salaries with no social protections such as insurance, etc. Meanwhile, a small group of very powerful Palestinian capitalists in the West Bank are able to exploit the situation for personal profit. And the Palestinian Authority's adoption of a strictly neoliberal economic program with its cuts to the public sector and expansion into private enterprises has exasperated all of this. Now, these structures intersect to create a situation where the majority of Palestinians are oppressed by both colonialism, patriarchy and capitalism. And this oppression is so deeply embedded, 
it's so difficult for us to imagine a future where its manifestations are not a daily reality. And even when we find the space or energy to think about a future, Palestinians are constantly told by international actors what they can and cannot expect from the future. So for the last few decades, the two-state solution was presented as the most feasible, the most rational solution by the international community. And this was premised on the notion of two states for two people, something that dates back to the 1947 UN partition plan. Now, the Palestinian leadership had long rejected partition, uh, always calling for the liberation of Palestine from the grips of Zionist settler colonialism. But in 1974, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, made its first nod to the solution in its 10-point program, which called for the establishment of a national authority over every part of Palestinian territory that is liberated, with the aim of completing the liberation of all Palestinian territory. In other words, they accepted that liberation might be territorial, territorially partial, uh, partial. Nearly two decades later, this position was formally adopted by the PLO at the Oslo Accords in what Edward Said called a Palestinian Versailles. For much of the international community, the Oslo Accords were embraced as this rational phased peace plan that would put an end to the so-called Middle East crisis. The irony was that the Israeli regime all the while continued to build settlements and expand into the 1967 occupied territories during the, during the negotiations and continued even after halting the negotiations. The Israeli illegal settlement enterprise continues to expand today, um, depriving Palestinians from their land and natural resources and further entrenching Israel's settler colonial role uh, and systematic subjugation of the Palestinian people. And even with the obvious failure of the Oslo Accords to bring about a sovereign Palestinian state, the international community still touts the two-state solution as the default formula for a Palestinian future. And they're always based on these notions of feasibility and rationality. In other words, what's considered most possible and acceptable within the current circumstances. These notions are often used as an attempt to limit Palestinian imagining. And when Palestinians steer away from the future possibilities, possibilities set out for them by the hegemonic narrative, they're often patronized and ignored. So considering all of this, diverting from the parameters, um, these parameters and imagining our liberation and a future in Palestine is understandably difficult. Yet challenging them has to be understand, uh, understood as a crucial part of the liberation struggle. At a conference in 2014, I, I believe it was, feminist scholar Angela Davis asserted this in the context of collective liberation. And she said, you have to act as if it was possible to radically transform the world. And you have to do this all the time. So in our context, this means believing that our liberation from Zionist settler colonialism is not only possible, but also inevitable. Bringing about a society in which people no longer suffer from the oppressive manifestations of capitalism, colonialism and patriarchy requires us to redefine our national liberation struggle to one that embodies the kind of society that we want to build. And this means that our political spaces and discourses must reflect this imagined future. Imagining our liberation and incorporating it into our political movement is also where we might find joy amidst all of this despair. 
Italian feminist scholar Silvia Federici wrote about how important this is, this notion of joy in politics. Uh, and I want to quote something. Um, I want to quote from something she said. She said, joyful politics is politics that change, changes your life for the better already in the presence. This is not to deny that political engagement often involves suffering. In fact, our political involvement often is born of suffering. But the joy is knowing and deciding that we can do something about it. It is recognizing that we share our pain with other people. It is feeling the solidarity of those around us. And so whilst the future will always be uncertain, we have to create better and more joyful spaces among one another today so that we can begin to imagine the outlines of a better world. Crucially, we can no longer accept that the Palestinian struggle to be free of settler colonial oppression is isolated from the Palestinian people's struggle to be free from other forces of oppression. Our liberation movement has to be one that tackles all forms of oppression and envisions a society that is equal and just for all. But we also have to recognize that the Palestinian struggle is inherently tied to other global and international struggles against oppression in whatever form that might be. And I think in the last decade or so, Palestinians are rebuilding connections that were once taken for granted. If we look back to the 1960s and 1970s, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, had primarily modeled its agenda, its goals and its tactics on the Algerian Front for Liberation, for National Liberation, which triumphed over French settlers. The PLO identified similar structures of invasion and sought camaraderie and expertise from Algerian leaders, as did Black Panthers and other revolutionaries from Latin America. Amilcar Cabral, the Pan-African revolutionary, once said, Muslims make the pilgrimage to Mecca, Christians to the Vatican, and their national liberation movements to Algiers. And indeed, after liberation from French settler colonialism, Algeria opened its doors to revolutionaries around the world. And this was a period that really embodied the spirit of internationalism. And importantly, anti-colonial struggle was at the heart of it. From Latin America to North Africa to East Asia, we saw revolutionaries, fighters, leaders donning the Palestinian kafir in a nod to solidarity, but also shared struggle. Now, a lot has happened since then. Revolutionary connections um, have since weakened, especially with the onset of neoliberalism and policies of de-development, which have insisted on depoliticization of civil societies and the grassroots. But also the strength of narratives can't be underestimated. The war on terror that dominated the 2000s and how that demonized the Palestinian struggle for liberation, as well as wreaking havoc and destruction all over the wider Middle East. And the more recent weaponization of anti-Semitism, which among many things has seen the character assassination of political leaders who support the Palestinian struggle, like Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. In Palestine itself, the internationalist politics that once, that once dominated the scene up until the first intifada dissipated, and we saw a deliberate process of depoliticization and the breaking of these internationalist ties. What eventually happened was that the Palestinian leadership shifted its discourse and policies from liberation and anti-colonial struggle to that of state building in the West Bank and Gaza. Among many things, this also meant that Palestine was shrunk down now not only to the West Bank and Gaza, but also only to certain parts of those occupied territories, 
in the West Bank, we're talking about these tiny area A's, um, Bantustans, essentially. But amidst all of this doom and gloom, if we look back to this past decade, I think we have seen a revitalization of this internationalist politics I outlined in the 60s and 70s. It's a politics that insists that Palestine is part of the progressive political package, that it has a natural place in progressive and radical organizing against imperialism, against capitalism, against climate change, and that you can't be feminist and not support the Palestinian liberation struggle. It's a politics that is not allowing Palestine to be the exception in socialist or in leftist space, spaces, because many of the culprits that are oppressing Palestinians are similarly oppressing others around the world. The arms and, and security companies are perfect examples of that. So the framing of Palestine as part of an internationalist uh, and radical package is important, not just for allies, but also for Palestinians. And there has to be a real reckoning with the internal domestic forces that help and exasperate our colonial condition. And very specifically, I'm talking about capitalist and patriarchal structures, which have moved us away from collectivism towards individualism and personal gain, which is really the perfect situation for any colonial entity, because the colonized becomes susceptible to corruption and, and collaboration and divisions within their own society. It serves the Israeli settler colonial regime very well to keep the Palestinian working classes, women and other marginalized groups doubly oppressed. And so I think here I'll end by saying that Palestine matters for the liberation of all of us and liberation elsewhere matters for Palestine. Every colonial capitalist and fascist regime toppled is a win for Palestine and Palestinian liberation in itself is a win for humanity and a win for justice. Thank you, Yara. Questions, is there a peace camp anymore in Israel? No, I think the, the recent elections or rather the series of elections over the last few years have shown that when it comes to, to the Palestinians, Israeli society is actually not divided on the matter. Uh, out of sight, out of mind is the best that we can hope for. But in terms of an organised uh, an organized political movement to end the occupation, um, to, to end apartheid, that's something that does not exist within Israeli society, sadly. And we're seeing Israeli society move further and further towards the right. Although I do think we have to be careful when talking about right and left in a settler colonial society. Um, I'm not sure if one is better than the other. Thank you. There's another one that is, can you expand on the concept of finding joy in activism, not falling into despair? Yeah, and that's something that I that I struggle with, and I know a lot of my comrades struggle with. And so, you know, reading the likes of Sylvia uh, Federici, I found incredibly important in how can we, and this, you know, speaks to not only Palestine organizing, but organizing in a time where we're facing massive inequality, um, people struggling even, you know, to, to live a half decent life, paying rent and bills um, and facing climate change and increased oppression of women across the world. It's, it's very easy to slip into despair. And so I think in these spaces where we do find camaraderie, where we do organize together, it's incredibly important to prioritize joyfulness, to, to prioritize, you know, to love and, and friendship in these spaces, because we can't organize, uh, we can't mobilize um, on, on despair. We can't bring people to the streets 
um, um, just on a narrative of uh, of depression and a narrative of um, total negativity. You know, we have to maintain the notion that our liberation is inevitable. Otherwise, what's the point? And so I think the likes of uh, Silvia Federici and other writers who've written about love in politics and joy in politics is incredibly important reading for all of us um, in, in organising spaces. Should or shouldn't 40, the 1948 Palestinians vote in elections and why? That comment is referring to Palestinian citizens of Israel, the Palestinians in the 48 okay. territories um, who have citizenship and are technically permitted uh, to vote in the the Israeli elections. I am of the the political camp that that boycotts the Israeli elections. I have Israeli citizenship and I uh, refuse to to take part in those elections for two reasons, Um, namely, firstly, because I do not want to legitimise the Israeli uh, colonial regime over any any part of uh, Palestine, but also part of a, a political tactic. Um, If we look over the years, over the decades, um, what has been achieved through the the Zionist Knesset in terms of Palestinian liberation, um, it's not only very limited, um, but also there's only so much that Palestinian citizens can achieve through that particular political path. Um, And I think actually it's to the detriment of the Palestinian struggle because the Israeli regime is able to use it to, to show or uh, to demonstrate that it's not an apartheid regime because it has Palestinian or rather what they call Arab because they deny Palestinian identity, um, Arab members of Knesset. And so they can use that as a way to say, you know, we're not an apartheid regime because we actually allow, because, you know, good for us, we allow, you know, uh, Arab uh, Knesset members. But so I think it's actually an ineffective um, political tactic uh, to take part in these elections. I think it's much more effective for Palestinians to organize um, outside of them. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, the problem is not with the the Israeli government, it's with the Israeli regime itself. So it doesn't matter what political party is in power. The Israeli regime is premised on apartheid and settler colonialism. Um, and that can't be challenged in the Israeli Knesset. Thank you. Um, look, there are a lot of questions. I'm trying to work through them. But, um, but there's one. Thank you for your lecture. Are all of the new Israeli settlements in Palestine resisted by the Palestine administration? Are there examples of where Palestinian resistance has stopped new settlements? Sorry, can you repeat that question? Um, are all of the new Israeli settlements into Palestine resisted by the Palestinian administration. Are there examples of where Palestinian resistance has stopped new settlements? So the, the Palestine administration, which I assume here the person is referring to the, the PA, the Palestinian Authority, and the Palestinian Authority does not resist uh, settlement building. It's a administrative body that was established after the Oslo Accords to manage the Palestinian populations in Gaza and in the areas uh, areas A of the West Bank. Um, so these very small bantustans um, in the West Bank, not even all of the West Bank, and it does not have sovereign control over the West Bank. It only has um, 
um, partial control over the population's administrative control. So the Palestinian Authority is not in the business of uh, resisting settlements. Um, the Palestinian communities themselves are consistently resisting against settlement expansion. Um, various communities uh, across the West Bank, um, including uh, in the in the South Hebron Hills, including uh, Beta, including uh, Nablus, Janine areas, all over Palestinian communities resist uh, settlement expansion, and in some cases they have succeeded to to protect their land and their communities from from uh, destruction, from from uh, theft, uh, from violence by settlers. But this is an enterprise that is spearheaded by the Israeli regime itself. It's an enterprise that is protected by the Israeli army. Um, and it's also an enterprise um, uh, that, ha that continues with impunity uh, from the international community. There are no serious efforts from the international community to prevent settlement expansion into the West Bank. And so in that context, it is incredibly difficult for Palestinians to, to physically prevent uh, the the expansion of settlements and as we've seen uh, really since um, since Oslo that more and more Palestinian land has been uh, taken uh, and has been swollen um, by these by these settlements uh, so our land is shrinking um, and even when we do resist and we have small wins in in the grand scheme of things unfortunately um, it's um, it's only getting worse Thank you. There, look, there are a couple about um, the Palestinian leadership. Thank you for an excellent presentation. With the demise of the PLO leadership, where is the new Palestinian leadership emerging? Is there a reconstituting of the PLO or is there a new mechanism emerging? So the, the current leadership, the Palestinian leadership, is headed by Mahmoud Abbas, um, who is the president of the, um, of the PLO. Unfortunately, Mahmoud um, Abbas is an uh, unelected uh, figure. He is 14 years past his elected mandate. Um, and even though the Palestinian leadership makes sort of nonce to, to holding elections and, um, and makes certain excuses why it can't hold her elections, um, th the current leadership is, is not a representation of the Palestinian people, um, neither in... Um, in democratic uh, legitimacy nor in political ideology. And so we've really seen uh, the Palestinian political leadership and its institutions become increasingly uh, corrupt and, and even defunct. Now, reviving or reforming uh, the PLO is, is sort of sounds like a good idea and sounds, um, you know, like the way forward in theory. Um, but the current leadership has no interest in doing that. Uh, just to give you an example, the other day, Palestinian civil society um, members held a conference on the reform of the PLO, and it was brutally shut down by Palestinian uh, security forces. So there's very little space um, uh, and very little safe space to discuss or to even enact uh, that kind of uh, reform. Um, it's not in uh, the current leadership's interest to have a democratic Palestinian leadership, and it's also not in the interest of the international community or the Israeli regime uh, for there to be a leadership that is truly representative of the Palestinian people. Both the international community and the Israeli regime are, 
want a leadership, a Palestinian leadership that is compliant to them, uh, that will continue to cooperate in uh, security coordination with them. Um, and so for the, for the meantime, definitely, I don't, in the short term, I don't see any uh, big changes with the leadership, even if uh, and when the current president uh, dies, there will be a succession process in which the leadership will be handed on to, to the next chosen candidate, um, a non-elected candidate. Um, thank you. There's another one. Uh, the young generation in Palestine have shifted to, or has shifted to armed resistance, as we've seen in Nablus and Janin recently. Do you support this form of resistance at this point of our struggle? I think it's, I think it's problematic to ask Palestinians in Palestine um, that question because it can re result in different repercussions, um, including arrest and imprisonment. I think it's important uh, to note that under international law, occupied peoples have the right to uh, to armed resistance. And we saw indeed with Ukraine and Russia, how uh, Ukrainian resistance against uh, Russian invasion and annexation uh, was glorified and supported by the West. And yet uh, in the case of Palestine, it's uh, the opposite occurs and it is demonized. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's very clear that that kind of resistance, even though it is, uh, the Palestinians have a right to resist under international law, it's very clear that it's demonized and criminalized um, by the, the, the international community. And is Israel succeeding in persuading Palestinians to leave Palestine and emigrate elsewhere? Yeah, this is a very sad reality that and and it's really part of the long game of Israel is to create the such a difficult situation for Palestinians in Palestine such an unlivable situation that many of them will want to leave and and we're seeing that um really especially for those who are able to leave because of course you know it's not as easy as as some might think um getting a visa or you know immigrating or applying for asylum is increasingly um, is getting increasingly hard in this day and age, but those who can, you know, I think many uh, of my peers are leaving for for a better life, for a safer life, for for more opportunities, um, and so that's really, you know, the, the the end game for Israel is to to create such a unlivable situation for Palestinians in Palestine. Um, that those who can will leave and those uh, who can't will be so bogged down with basic survival of the day-to-day -day, um, that there'll be no energy or space left to, to resist um, the settler colonial structure. I think we've all been here. Do you have any tips for talking to friends, especially Jewish and Israeli friends who already have certain preconceptions from their upbringing about Palestine? It is such a difficult conversation. Yeah, it's a very difficult conversation because, you know, people, it's it's seen as such a polarizing one. But I think one of the important things, and, and this was something I talked about in the lectures, is de-exceptionalizing Palestine and the Israeli regime. Um, if you're someone who considers uh, yourself as a progressive, as on the left of the political spectrum, um, and you support, you know, fundamental uh, rights for everyone, um, then I think supporting Palestine um, is not really a, a, a big jump. Uh, and I think, um, you know, drawing comparisons between the Israeli regime and other settler colonial entities, but also highlighting um, the settler colonial Israel's regime and how involved and embedded it is in oppression 
uh, globally through, for example, um, the weapons and security uh, trade, I think highlights really what Israel is at its core. Um, so I think those uh, those points are incredibly important when you engage with folks who are who have preconceived notions, who perhaps come from sort of liberal Zionist backgrounds, um, or who have a sort of some kind of attachment to the the Israeli regime. I think fundamentally, you cannot consider yourself progressive if you don't support Palestinian liberation, um, and I think that's a, a good place to start. Do you see two states or one state, and if two, on the 1967 Green Line, if not, on what borders? I mean, I think I made it clear in the talk that I don't support a two-state solution. I think um, I think the PLO um, made a mistake um, with Oslo, um, and Edward Said wrote a brilliant um, article called The Morning After, um, about um, what the Oslo Accords really were, and he saw it much before uh, many people saw um, saw it that this was really an agreement for further subjugation. Um, but in at its very core, I don't support uh, or would ever promote the partition uh, of uh, of historic Palestine. I'm not one for for borders or divisions. Um, um, between communities and peoples. Um, so, and I think the two-state solution um, was a, a cop-out, a way to sort of uh, solve something without really tackling the root uh, issues to the Palestinian struggle, of course, one of which is the Palestinian refugees. I mean, if you think about the Palestinian refugees who are now well over 7 million um, in a two-state solution, they would not be entitled to return to their homes of origin. Um, I think, you know, the two-state solution also doesn't address what would happen to Israel, which is inherently an apartheid regime. It would continue being an apartheid regime in a two-state solution. Um, So I think there are a lot of unanswered questions um, with a two-state solution, but I think for a world which enjoys borders and partition, it seemed uh, like the, the most logical uh, way forward, but it's definitely not something that is um, compatible with my with my politics. Thank you. First and foremost, thank you for your lecture, Yara. How important do you find the interlinking of struggles between marginalised and colonialised people, colonised people, in ch- in changing the current Israeli Palestine Palestinian paradigm? I ask this as a dual. African-American-Australian citizen who has over the years witnessed a significant increase in expressions of solidarity between Palestine, Palestinian and African-American peoples and causes in particular. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important that these these connections and and links are made. Um, You know, I think Palestine is not going to be liberated um, in a void. For Palestine to be liberated and for us to see an end to the the apartheid regime, a lot of things have to change around the world. Um, uh, power imbalances, a lot of uh, uh, politics. If you look at Europe at the moment, it's shifting heavily towards the right. Um, it's becoming increasingly fascist. And this is not a politics that, that is friendly towards uh, Palestinian liberation nor other people's liberation. So the point is, is that you know for, Pal- for Palestine to be liberated, we have to see politics shift massively 
globally. It's not going to be liberated on its own. It has to, it's going to be liberated uh, in a global uh, um, shift in politics. And so that's why, you know, when people talk about feeling overwhelmed um, when it comes to Palestine, not knowing what they can do, you know, really focusing and working on local politics is as important as doing Palestine solidarity work, changing your local uh, governments, uh, your your national governments to to ones that are adopt a politics of uh, uh, of supporting fundamental rights, of supporting uh, liberation struggles is is crucial. So you know you're not going to have, and we're not going to liberate Palestine here on our own if all of Europe is is still fascist. Um, and I think you know what we're seeing in Latin America is. It's exciting the sort of the the shift back towards the left uh, to governments that are very um, supportive of the Palestinian struggle, such as in Chile and Brazil. And I think that we have to see more of that happen. Yara, there are a couple here on the BDS movement. One is um, again, thank you for your inspiring talk. You've really you've really touched people. Um, could you please comment on how effective has the BDS campaign been to date in progressing us? closer towards Palestinian liberation. And might just ask the other one because it's the first to what you've spoken about. You mentioned the USA views Israel as an asset, a bulwark in the Middle East. What is the most effective way to convince the US that it isn't an asset? Is it the international BDS movement? So I guess we want to, you know, how effective do you think the BDS movement is? So I think the BDS movement has, you know, had some really incredible wins. Um, in a lot of different areas. Um, divestment, um, they've uh, put pressure on uh, many companies to, to divest from uh, Israeli apartheid and they've been successful in that. Uh, the mobilization on campuses around the world um, between students and academics um, who have boycotted complicit Israeli academic institutions. Um, so there have been a lot of wins. And I think, you know, as a, um, as a movement, they're growing from strength to strength. And I think it's in, the BDS movement is incredibly important in the Palestinian struggle for liberation. Um, and, it, you know, it puts pressure on in the right places. It adopts, you know, the anti-apartheid struggle framework, um, which was very successful in the, in the case of South Africa. So I think there are a lot of uh, wins there. But I also think, you know, much more has, has to happen. We have to see... Um, policy shifts, global policy shifts from a government level um, to hold Israel accountable um, for its crimes against the, the Palestinian people. And so I think, you know, I think that uh, in the US, for example, while, you know, BDS is incredibly important in the US context and is, um, is having some wins, I think it's also incredibly important that people do uh, local politics work. You know, the, the, the US government um, even with, a, you know, we've seen the Democrats, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, um, Israel is a bipartisan issue. They received bipartisan support. Um, so it's about fundamentally changing U.S. politics. Um, and, and, you know, the U.S. is a case in point. The U.S. is a settler colonial regime. So you're asking a settler colonial regime to end its support for another settler colonial regime. And so I think there's a lot of internal politics 
or a lot of internal things in the US that have to be reckoned with before it becomes, before it will ever stand in opposition to Israeli apartheid. It has to reckon with its own history of settler colonialism, which of course it has not done. And so I think, you know, just to conclude on this point, I think, you know, the BDS movement is incredibly important. People um, should get involved, but so is local politics and so is changing uh, uh, politics and the areas in which you live in and investing in your communities and working with your communities to talk about Palestine and include it in a, this sort of progressive and, and radical package of, of politics. This person asked, I was inspired by Colin McCann's novel, excuse my pronunciation, A Paragon, which mentions Palestinian and Jewish families who have lost children to violence, meeting together and finding common ground. Is there much of this collaboration taking place? I think, you know, it's that the notion of common ground is, is a difficult one. Um, I think, you know, when you have a regime, a settler colonial regime, um, that where its colonization is, is ongoing, uh, the oppression of Palestinians is ongoing, and many people within that regime are complicit in that oppression. Um, so finding sort of common ground, I think, is not the stage we're in. I think that comes in a sort of post-conflict or post-apartheid era, and that's what happened in South Africa. You know, once the apartheid regime ended, um, that is when reconciliation efforts happened. And I think um, I think the same would be applied here. I don't think you can have uh, reconciliation whilst the, the abuse and the oppression continues. And so I think, you know, the focus... Uh, has to be for Palestinians. Certainly, the focus is not on is not on that, but rather on internal politics and looking at how to mobilize Palestinians um, in this in this incredibly difficult context and how to rebuild those those uh, internationalist links, because we are in this global situation, you know, and we Palestinians are not. Uh, we're not so self-centered to think that this is the only thing that the world should care about. We are in a very difficult, globally, a very difficult situation um, where people are, are suffering uh, from the nasty, you know, the nasty consequences of capitalism, the nasty consequences of, of climate change. And all of these things are related. And so Palestine has to be has to be part of that discussion as well, where we're talking about a world that is just for everyone where you know the the working classes and and those in the global south aren't you know are, are suffering because of you know a very small minority of people um so i think in in that context we have to find as i mentioned earlier we have to find those spaces of of joy and hope and i think it's it's about coming together around a certain politics um, around a certain politics that that embraces the liberation of of the Palestinian people, and I think in those spaces, I think that's the kind of common ground we should be looking for. Well, thank you, Yara, and thank you everyone for your questions. I'm sorry we couldn't, you know, we couldn't ask um, ask all of them, but um, thank you for your very insightful um, presentation, Yara, on on many levels, and also um, I think we. You know, we want to assure you that things are moving and happening in Australia. Our um, new government is, um, we believe, 
um, moving towards some action. It's doing that slowly with its uh, decision to reverse the, you know, the decision on the previous government on the uh, Jerusalem embassy. We're hoping the next step will be um, recognition of Palestine as a state. But be aware that you have, or Palestinians have, a great number of supporters in Australia. We had a, um, a poll before the previous um, election in March, or May it was, and um, it showed that the majority of Australians are aware of what's happening in Palestine and they want their government to do something. So, you know, we are moving and we are agitating and advocating for that. So you have a lot of support. The Palestinian people have a lot of support in Australia. Um, so thank you. And, and tell your friends that. And I, I just think it seems strange to not to acknowledge and show our appreciation in the normal manner. And I think, you know, you'd have a standing ovation. Um, the comments on our, you know, preceding these questions have just been about inspiring, wonderful, you know, insightful, just all those words that you deserve. It was a fantastic talk. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you so much for having me and for hosting me. Uh, yeah, no, no, it was an absolute pleasure to have someone as esteemed as you speaking. I'm sure you'll agree that was a wonderful lecture, beautifully facilitated by Edie Bainsbury, Dr. Yara Howery. Tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.